How's everybody doing? <laughs> good, good. I have a really important question to ask you guys. I've asked every service, and I have to ask you guys as well. Um, what do you call Batman when he doesn't attend church on a consistent basis? Christian Bale. Christian Bale, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't take credit for that one. Um, Young lady at Starbucks, my barista, Holly, I give her all the credit. She always has the worst jokes for me. And she was so excited the other day. She goes, hey, I have a good pastor joke. It's a Christian joke, a Christian Bale joke. And I was like, it's good. Give it to me. I'm going to use it. So uh, there it was. If you guys, it's good to laugh because we're in Ecclesiastes. (laughs) So uh, the laughing is going to turn to mourning soon. Just give me a couple of minutes and um, and we'll we'll get into the deep stuff. But Uh, On a serious note, if you have not been with us through Ecclesiastes, this has been, uh, at least for me, the first half of it. We're we're right now halfway through this book. It's an Old Testament book, and um, it's fascinating, and it's been huge in my personal life because it's bringing up the the big questions, right? I mean, the big things. Today, we're going to talk about the big things, the big questions. And the reason why this book is so fascinating is we have an author, Solomon, that wrote this book at the end of his life, and this guy had everything. The money, the power, the pleasure, everything that this world tells us that we need to be happy, he had it all, and he wasn't happy. And so it's a very, very interesting perspective that he has, a guy that achieved everything one could achieve, and he looked back and said, it was like chasing the wind. It it didn't give me what I thought it was gonna give me. Last week, we were in chapter five, And we talked about anxiety, which is kind of an uncomfortable topic sometimes. People are very sensitive when it comes to the topic of anxiety. And a lot of times, I think the reason why we struggle with anxiety so much is we are either trying to obtain things that we don't have, so we get anxious because we want these things, or a lot of us become anxious because we have things and we're afraid of losing them. So we ask the question, not that all anxiety comes from this, but do we reach a point of anxiety Because quite honestly, we're running after the wrong things. We're pursuing the wrong things. We're in love with the wrong things. This week, we're in chapter six. Extremely short, so we're going to go through it relatively quickly. I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I normally do it. I'm going to add a a series of questions at the end of each section that I read. I usually kind of wait till the end to ask those questions, but we're going to do it kind of throughout the whole lesson, spend a little bit of extra time talking about these big ideas. But we're going to end with this big question of, where do we find value? How do we know that we're worth anything? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of living? Why do we wake up in the morning? The big questions, right? The huge questions. And we'll end up focusing on that a little bit towards the end. So you should have got a notes handout at any of the entrances. If you didn't by any chance, it'll all be on the screen, so don't worry. It's also on the Experience Community app if you have that. Download that. It's free. And, and click on Service Times at the bottom sermon notes. You get all the scripture. If you have a hard copy of the scripture, I still like a hard copy. I'm still a book person. Is anyone else? I can't read on like a tablet or anything. Yeah, I have to have like pages. You know, like I just have to do that. So I like a physical copy of the book. I'm just one of those, those people. Um, if you have a physical copy right after the book of Proverbs, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter six. We'll read a little bit. We'll break it down and we'll see where we go. Okay. All right. Cool. Let me pray. We'll jump into this, and um, we'll see where God takes us, okay? We'll hang out a little bit at the end, just kind of reflect a little bit about about value, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. 
I wanna tell you, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, for this church. Lord, I love this church so much, God. I love the people in this room. Uh, I love the people in all four services, God. I, I love this. I, I love what you've given us, Lord. It's special. God, I pray that you bless this church today. God, I pray that your word speaks to us, Lord, and, and just pierces our heart today, God, and encourages us and challenges us. And I pray that we ask the bigger questions. God, I pray, Lord, not just for our church. I pray for every church in our city, Lord. Pray, God, for the churches outside of our city that we work with all over the country and churches we work with all over the world, God. And I pray, Lord, that everything we do today, that it honors you and it makes you proud and that, uh, and that it sharpens us, God. We love you and we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. I'm going to read a little bit and go back and break it down and we're going to do some questions. Okay. All right. This is Solomon speaking. He says, here is a tragedy... I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing for all that he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things, and does not have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For he comes in futility, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. I say this every week because it's important to remember. If we read the book of Ecclesiastes not in the proper context, it can be taken way out of context. So in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, Solomon talks about a man that was blessed. He had riches, he had wealth, he had influence, but he remembered that God is his source of contentment. So this man could enjoy the things of this life, but ultimately he knew that his joy came from God. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6, we see the opposite. We see someone that is blessed with all these finances and blessed with success and influence, but they don't know that their contentment comes from God. They don't recognize that all good things come from Him. And this is why we struggle. The reason why so many of us struggle with the heaviness of this life is because we think our content and success is solely based on our achievement that it's all up to me. I've got to accomplish this. I've got to do this. I've got to create my own destiny and my own path. And it's all about me and it's all in my control. And that's not true. Joy and contentment comes from God. True success comes from God. But listen, I don't want to let us off the hook there because we are partially responsible. Now, success and contentment, yes, they ultimately come from the Lord. Everything good comes from God. But if we're to appreciate that success, if we're to identify and recognize that contentment, we have to choose to be humble. And we have to choose to realize that all good things come from God. It's similar to salvation. I get a little irked when I hear Christians go, there is nothing you can do in order to help you be saved. And that's not true. The Bible says those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means that we have a responsibility to call on the name of the Lord. 
And once we call on the name of the Lord, though we cannot save ourselves, we have to be willing to be saved. And then we have to walk in a relationship with God and we have to be obedient to God. So we do have a little bit of responsibility on our hands. The Bible even says when we take a step towards God, he takes a step towards us. But that means we have to take a step, right? That we have to be partially responsible. We also need to define success. We define success in a very interesting way, especially in the United States, right? You'll have a multi-billionaire who's been divorced 13 times and everyone hates him, but we're like, he's really successful, even though he's quite the failure, right? And so anyways, we, we look at people and we define success kind of on this American dream standard, and that's not necessarily biblical success. And what happens, though, is when we don't define success properly and biblically, we create bullcrap like the prosperity gospel. That if you just follow God, you're going to be too blessed to be stressed, which Jesus was so stressed, he sweat blood. But anyways, that's some other bad theology that people throw in there. And, and so people, people talk about these things, not bad theology that he sweat blood, bad theology that you're too blessed to be stressed. We throw in this, this bad theology that if you just love God, you're going to have all of these blessings all the time and financial blessings, and that's just not true. But the problem is, is we think success is always tied to finances. And it can be, but that's not the whole of success. Biblical success is having a relationship with God. Not just a relationship with God, but having a good relationship with people around us. Biblical success is having strong work ethic, it's having integrity, it's living out the gospel, not just knowing what the Bible says, but living out what the Bible says. True success is understanding where our value comes from and our identity and our purpose. So we often think of success in terms of a business success, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, but God looks at, let's say the school teacher, and I'm not dogging on you if you're a school teacher, I used to be one, but if you're a school teacher that might make you know, $42,000 a year, which isn't a ton of money for a whole family, but though you make a modest uh, salary and you live in a modest neighborhood and drive a modest car, but you have a strong relationship with God, a strong relationship with your spouse and your children, a good reputation at your work and around the community, that's about as successful as one can be. That's the kind of success that we should be striving for. It's biblical success. So we have to redefine success. The bottom line is this, though. The key is always God. It's impossible to define success. It's impossible to define what wealth truly is without God in the mix. Without having God in the mix and without having the word of God directing us, what we do is we end up taking things for granted. We keep looking for contentment, and no matter how much money we make or how many you know, notches up the corporate ladder we achieve or no matter how many kids we have or how many things that we do in this life, contentment seems to be elusive when God is not in the mix because we forget that all good things come from God. We forget that. And so Solomon uses a very crass analogy. It's almost kind of hard to read that, isn't it? He says, better that, that one be a stillborn child than be someone that doesn't have a relationship with God. Now in Solomon's day, it was a blessing, isn't this ironic? In Solomon's day, it was seen as a blessing from God to have a, a lot of children. In our culture, we almost see it as a curse, right? But in Solomon's time, it was a blessing to have a lot of children. And he says, basically, even if you have a ton of children and you have this huge family, but you don't honor God, that's futile. 
Solomon says, even if you live to be 2,000 years old and you have a name that stretches for generations without God in our lives, we end up in the same place. We end up dead. We end up lost spiritually. It's futile. There's, there's no point to those things. What Solomon is saying is, with all the worldly success that we can have, without God there is no contentment. So we can have earthly success but not be fulfilled. So what do we do? The first thing that you and I need to do is we need to define success based on the Bible, not on the American dream. And I'm not trying to bust on Americans, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. That's our culture. And so we don't need to look at what the world calls success. We need to look at what God calls success. We need to redefine it. Secondly, we must choose to recognize where success comes from. That's what keeps us humble. When we realize that every good thing that we've ever done is because God has allowed us to do it, it keeps us humble and we don't get arrogant because we know apart from God that we are gonna fail. Lastly, we must understand that we can never truly enjoy success without God. We can make millions, everyone can know our name, we can have more likes on Instagram because that's important to people, we can have all that stuff, but without God in our lives, we're never gonna be able to truly enjoy those things. It will never be enough, okay? We'll never be satisfied. All of a person's labor is, is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile, and it's a pursuit of the wind. Solomon points out that this, if we work hard, if we achieve, if we're successful, but we do it all for selfish desires, he says that that appetite will never be quenched. Guys, if we're just being honest with ourselves, I think all of us have done this. I've done it as a pastor I told you guys this about a month ago. I started the church and I'm like, God, if you can just get us to this number, I will be satisfied because that was selfish. I wanted to be able to boast about how big the church was, right? And I achieved. I'm an achievement-driven person. Money has never driven me, but achievements drive me. And that can be good sometimes and it can also be very dangerous sometimes. But I would say, God, if I can just get here, I'll, I'll be good. Then you get there and you realize, well, can I get here? And then you get there and you're like, well, God, can I get here, right? And then you start to realize there's a problem with me. Because when it becomes about selfish, when my success becomes selfish, that, that, that is never quenched. That appetite is, is never satisfied. So here's the thing, though. It's not that we shouldn't work hard. God likes hard work. I'm going to show you that here in a second. It's not that we shouldn't work hard. It's not that we shouldn't even strive to achieve things. There's nothing wrong with promotions or you getting a raise or you getting an MBA or a doctorate. There's nothing wrong with those things. But what we have to do is we have to check our motives when we do those things. We have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? What is the driving force behind that? But again, God is not against hard work. Look what the Bible says here in Colossians. Paul wrote this. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as if something done for the Lord and not for people. Let me translate that in our modern day society and culture. Even if you're just, as the old cliche says, a street sweeper, right? Because you're a Christian, be the best street sweeper you can possibly be. I see street sweepers now and they drive around and listen to the radio and do that. I'm like, that actually looks like a pretty sweet gig to me. But anyways, 
Whatever your lot in life is, if you're flipping burgers because you're in college and you work at Steak and Shake to to pay your rent and get yourself through college and it's just a part-time job until you get your career going, that's fine. I know it's just a part-time job, but don't do it because your boss is just making to or don't just get away with the, the bare minimum that you can. Do it like God is watching because he is. And do it to the best of your ability and put a smile on your face and have the best customer service and do all those things. Why? Because it honors God. The Bible says do everything to the best of your ability. Work hard. That honors God. Uh, Solomon said this in Proverbs. He says, commit your activities to the Lord and you'll be successful. The word establishment there can be translated as successful. What this means is whatever we do, whether it be in school or job or stay-at-home mom or whatever the case may be, if we will give our plans over to God, seek his will, and follow what he wants us to do, we will be successful the way that God wants us to be successful. Nothing wrong with hard work. Nothing wrong with achievement as long as God is the reason why we're doing those things. Solomon also says... That if we are wise in this world, I'm not talking about biblically wise or religiously wise or spiritually wise. I'm talking about people who are wise in this world and people who are intelligent in this world, they do have an advantage, right? Jeff Bezos has a lot of advantages over Corey Trimble. He's worth $100 billion and I'm not, right? So he can do things that I can't do. He has advantages in this life. He can travel to places I'll probably never be able to afford to go. He has advantages, The problem, though, with earthly wisdom and earthly intelligence is all those things come to an end. Then what? It goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Guys, there is nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this life. There's nothing wrong with you going to a nice dinner with your wife. There's nothing wrong with you getting a newer car or or moving into that nicer neighborhood or getting that VP position at your work. There's nothing wrong with any of that. We can enjoy the temporary things of this life, But as Christians, we must be longing for the eternal things. Even though these things right here are nice, man, I want to hang out with Jesus Christ. Man, I want to be in heaven. I want to be in perfection. I don't want any more war or famine or competition or abuse or anything. I want to be with God forever. We long for those things. But when we don't long for those things, we think that the temporary things of this life, are are, it's all we have. But they come up short, don't they? And they eventually come to an end. Now, verse 8b is kind of interesting to me, the second part of verse 8. There's a couple of different interpretations to why he he talks about poor people that act well in public. And this is more than likely what that means. There's a lot of people that find their identity in what they have. Look at the neighborhood I look in, look at the live in, look at the position I hold at work, look at how much money is in my bank account. We find our identity in that, and that's wrong. It's not where we should find our identity. There's also a lot of people who find themselves to be superior to others because they don't have things. Well, look at how much I don't have. I'm a victim. Look at how holy I am because I've given everything up. And we have what's called a poverty gospel. Now, the Bible doesn't teach a prosperity gospel that if you're good, God's going to give you money. And the Bible also doesn't teach that if you're good, God's going to take all your money. It doesn't teach either one of those extremes. In fact, the Bible says, enjoy the things that you have in this life. So whenever someone teaches a prosperity gospel, that's bogus. And when everyone says you got to sell everything and beat yourself with the whip because you're so awful and everyone will love you, that actually becomes a selfish action as well. I know tons of people who walk around, I have nothing and I've done it all for Jesus. No, you didn't. You did it so we would all think you're awesome. And that's not good either. 
You don't have God, just like the filthy rich that depend on their money don't have God either. So to give everything up for any other reason except God telling you to do so is pointless. Only do it if God tells you to do it. And the problem is this. Our emotions deceive us. We've become a society that follows how we feel. And the Bible warns us not to let our feelings and our emotions be the mechanism that steers how we live. Emotions are wonderful servants and they are terrible masters. They should not dictate how we live. But we have become a society that if we feel a certain way, it must be real, right? Imagine if all of us in this room followed our emotions and feelings all the time. You would have killed someone by now, wouldn't you have, right? It's coming home at eight o'clock at night, Wednesday night, Wednesday night, eight o'clock from Nashville. I was reminded about why I hate Nashville so much. I'm coming back from Nashville. It is bumper to bumper. It took us an hour and 10 minutes to get from Nashville to our home, which is only 25 miles away. Hour and 10 minutes. The whole time, thoughts going through my head. I'm in an SUV. I can run right down the line, push all these cars out of the way, <laughs> drill these people, move these people out. Whole time, fingers in the air, just saying awful things. It's what's going through my brain, right? Just confessing things. It's like every day for some of you, isn't it, right? <laughs> but you don't act on those because the Holy Spirit inside of us says, Corey, that's not okay, right? It's not okay to act on that. The thought may blip through your mind, but you need to put a stop to that. The Bible says to capture those thoughts, right? So that's what we do. We don't act on those feelings. We let the Holy Spirit, we act on what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. But imagine if we acted out and if all of our feelings became our realities, we would have utter chaos. It would be absolutely insane. It's unsustainable. What happens is this. When we don't have God in our life, all of our work and success doesn't give us any fulfillment. Let me ask you, are our plans misplaced? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Here's what we do. <laughs> we make plans, right? Hey, God, I'm gonna date this girl, I'm gonna move to this city, I'm gonna take this job, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna spend my money this way. Oh, and by the way, can you put your stamp of approval on my plans? That's what we do, isn't it? Let's be honest. And when then we wonder why our plans keep failing. They keep failing because they're not God's plans, they're your plans. So what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go to God and say, God, I wanna do these things, I'd like to live in this area and I really like this young lady, I'd like to marry her and I'd like to take this job. Is that your will? And we see what God tells us and see if he directs us. There's a story in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was at civil war, the north and the south, they were at odds with each other. Even though they were at odds with each other, they had a greater enemy that was in the east. The east, right? What is modern day Jordan? So as the Old Testament tells us, the king from the north and the king from the south get together, they draw up plans, they pull their armies together, they've already written it, they've already sent out the troops, they're gonna go to war with this enemy from the east. And then after they've sent the troops, drawn up the plans, sent the documents and the, and, and the agreements and everything else, after they've done everything, they go, oh, wait a second, we need to pray and make sure God is with us. Do you know what happened? They got their butts handed to them. They lost this war because they took all these steps and made all these plans and God, they just wanted God's kind of like stamp of approval. They didn't want God's direction. They just wanted him to say, your plans are good. 
That's not the way God works. Do we miss fulfillment at whatever we do because we're not working for the right boss? It changes the way you do everything when you understand that God is watching and how you work, whether people ever notice it or not, how you work honors or dishonors God. Do we work for the correct boss? If we did, we can find fulfillment even with that part-time job that's just helping you get through school. You can find fulfillment. Are we a people that let our feelings dictate the truth? Well, I know the Bible says this is a sin, but I don't feel like that. I don't know if God really cares. This is the truth. This is his will and desire. And if we're truly following him, regardless of how we feel, we're gonna do what the Bible tells us to do. But do we let our feelings dictate our reality? Last part. Whatever exists was given its name long ago. And what is known and has known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in this life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? What Solomon is saying is this. We as finite individuals, finite means that we have a, a limited amount of time, right? We have limitations to our life. We as finite individuals are constantly trying to figure out the infinite because, but, but before we were created, there was an all-knowing God, but, but because we don't turn to him, because we don't acknowledge that there is something greater than us, we live in confusion. Well, where did we come from? What is our purpose? Well, if we don't acknowledge a God, those answers come up short. There are no answers. And so Solomon says something very provocative here. He says what happens is, is we are people that cannot contend with one stronger than us. What that simply means in our day and age, and we're seeing it so much in American culture, what we're seeing is we refuse to be told that there is anyone of a higher authority than me. I set my own destiny I make my own right and wrong. You can't tell me how to think. You can't tell me how to live. You can't tell me uh, what my preferences are. No one can tell me what to do. The problem is, is that we are a prideful people. Isn't it amazing that 3,000 years ago, Solomon hit the nail right on the head? The problem with humanity is we are so arrogant that we refuse to look up and acknowledge that there is something greater than us. So we write all these words and we say all these things to rationalize our lifestyles and rationalize our actions and legitimize our crazy theological ideas or anti-theological ideas. And we come up with all these words to try to legitimize how we feel. And the problem is we lack humility and we lack a submissiveness to something bigger than us. If we could just find some humility, if we would be humble, and if we would be willing to submit to the greater thing above us, we would find our purpose. We would find our meaning. We would find contentment. But isn't it amazing? The more we say, I have my destiny in my hands, I can create my own moral compass, I can say what's right and wrong for me, the more we say this, the more depressed we are, the more suicidal we are, the more divorces take place, the more abuse happens, the more all these awful things happen, the more we try to take 
all of it into our hands, the more and more broken humanity becomes. It's fascinating to me. And it's all based in pride. And Solomon says, what good has this done you? What advantage has it had for humanity to not acknowledge God? Look at human history. Every great empire has fallen apart. All human endeavors have come up short. We keep trying to eradicate all diseases and we're not. We keep trying to eradicate all poverty and we can't. Even Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. We will never beat certain things because we are incapable. So what benefit does it serve mankind to not look up and acknowledge something greater? He even says, for, what, for, for, for who of you knows what's good? If we don't look up at something greater than humanity, who sets the bar for what is right and wrong? Let me tell you how dangerous that can be. Whenever we say, well, what's right for you may not be right for me. Let me tell you how dangerous that is. Whenever we don't have a definitive bar of what is right and wrong, you have organizations like NAMBLA that spring up, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. It's a group of men, they've been around for about 50 years, and they push legislation so they can have sex legally with boys. That's a real thing. Well, Corey, that'll never happen. It happened in the Roman Empire. There were Roman senators and governors that had sex with children all the time. The most prominent empire that has ever existed. What do you mean it can't happen in our culture? Of course it can. Legislation that's being passed so humans can have sex with animals. All kinds of crazy stuff. Not in our country, really? You don't think so? Whenever we take out a definitive moral compass, whenever we take out the notion that there is a definitive right and wrong, all chaos breaks loose, all hell breaks loose, and quite frankly, it is unsustainable. We will eat ourselves alive when all of us can determine what is good and what is bad. We will eat ourselves alive. And without acknowledging that there is something greater than us, Solomon says we're just a bunch of shadows. The Bible uses the imagery of shadows a couple of times, and it basically shows how, how frail we are as humans. Just like a shadow, there's a shadow right here of this, of this TV screen. I can see the shadow, I can see the outline of it, but I can't touch it. There's no substance to that, and whenever the light shines on it, it disappears. What that means is this, listen. When we fail to identify ourselves as a creation, lower, of a creator, higher. When we fail to identify that we are the creation, he is the creator, it is no wonder that we find ourselves completely off course. It is no wonder when we find ourselves weak, while we find ourselves utterly hopeless, it is no wonder we fail to recognize that we are the creation of a creator. So, some questions. Because here's the thing. Without acknowledging a God, we keep asking questions, but we don't get any answers. So if there is nothing greater than us, tell me who determines what is right and what is wrong. Because there are some parts on planet Earth where it's okay to eat your neighbor. Cannibalism. Who are you to say it's wrong? Well, that's wrong. Who are you to say? Why is it wrong? It's right for them. It's been working for them for thousands of years. Who are you to tell them any differently, right? There's some countries right now in the world that take young women and, and, and completely mutilate their genitalia because they don't want those women to have any sexual pleasure. Well, that's wrong. Who are you to say? Why is it wrong? Who determines what is right and wrong? 
is there, if, if there's nothing greater than us, let me ask you this, why are humans of any value? If there's no ramifications for the things that we do, if there's no afterlife, are we just a bunch of neurological impulses? Do we have a soul? Are we simply animals just like dogs are animals? What makes you valuable? What makes a human life worth anything? And then the greatest question, are we even humble enough to, to look for the right answers? Are we willing to submit if we realize that there is a higher authority? Let me share an interesting story with you. So I'm doing this study on Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and I'm going through a bunch of commentaries, and I come across an excerpt from a valedictorian speech from Dartmouth College, one of the most prestigious colleges in the world. And so I found this, this, this speech that a guy named David Levy gave in 1971, kind of at the height of the Vietnam era. And David Levy, <laughs> fascinating valedictorian speech. He had a 5.0 at Dartmouth. So what that means is you do everything perfect at the most prestigious university in the nation, plus some extracurricular stuff, right? Some extra credit. And so this guy gets up here as a, a, a young 20-something, and he opens up his valedictorian speech with this. Take pity on me, those of you who can justify the air you breathe, and tell me how you came to appreciate the absurdity of your life. Now, I read this, and I thought that I got what he was getting at, right? But I wasn't sure. So here's what I did. I Googled David Levy. He's written a couple of books, and I found out that he teaches at the University of Washington. So I sent him an email. She's like, hey, I know it's a long shot, but here's my cell phone number. Can you give me a call? And I told him that I was a pastor and that I'm teaching Ecclesiastes and that I think his Dartmouth valedictorian address goes along with chapter six of Ecclesiastes. So 30 minutes later, he gives me a call. He goes, hey, this is David Levy. Who are you? <laughs> and we got to talking and it was really, really fascinating. I said, hey, can you clarify for me why you said this? We talked for about 40 minutes. I was at my house, and we talked for a long time over the phone. And he said, Corey, I got in front of the most educated 20-somethings on planet Earth, most of them extremely wealthy, because you have to be very wealthy to go to Dartmouth. Even after student aid, they say on average it costs $21,000 a year after student aid and everything else to go to Dartmouth College. So it's about 45, 45 grand a year. And so he sat there in front of the most educated he got there in front of some of the most successful families, represent, I mean, Robert Frost went to, to Dartmouth, uh, a lot of famous politicians, Mindy Kaling from the office went to Dartmouth. So all these people went to the office, or went to Dartmouth. <laughs> and he says he stood in front of all these people, and he basically said, where do you find your value? Do you find value in your education? Does that make you valuable? He looked in, at one part of the speech, he says, all of you rich people in the room, does that give you value, your money? And then he posed the question, well, what about the people that don't have money? Are they not of any value? What about the people that didn't graduate from Dartmouth and Ivy League school? Are they not worth anything? This man asked the biggest questions at this valedictorian speech. The New York Times wrote a huge story on it and it's been almost 50 years since he wrote this. And as we sat there and talked, he goes, I was just a young, angry guy. But he goes, I was asking the big questions. And the big question he was posing is, where does our value come from? Where does our value come from? Now, let me ask you. 
a lot of us find our value in idols. We make idols all the time in this world. We make idols out of things that are crazy. We read the Old Testament. We go back into the Old Testament. Maybe you've read this. And you read about Abram, who became Abraham. And his job was to make these little idols out of pieces of wood and clay. And we read that and we're like, man, that is dumb. But we walk around with this idol in our pocket all the time that we spend more time with than our wife and kids. That we go into debt every two years to get the new idol, right? Because the new idol has an extra camera on it. <laughs> Look up how much time you spend on that. When's the last time you spent that much time with your wife? Corey, it's not an idol. Sure it is. Sure it is. Take it away for a day. See if you don't worship it. What about movie stars and, and musicians? Well, they're not my idol, but you dress just like them. You talk just like them. You do everything they do, right? You follow every step that they make. Let me ask you about all the idols that we make in our society and our culture. Do they withstand the test of time? Obviously, your phone doesn't. You have to get a new one every two years. Obviously, your movie stars and your actors and your singers, that culture changes real quick, right? Do they love you back? The idols that we have in this world, do, they, do that movie star call you and ask you how you're doing on a regular basis? Do you have access do they comfort you at night? Does the gluttony and the overindulgence, does the sex and the drug, whatever the idol is, has it loved you back? Has it been good? Has it served you well? We try to find our value in all these things that have no ability to give us value. What makes life worth living? Why do we wake up in the morning? Why do we keep going on? What is it, why is it important for us to live a certain way? Why is it important for us to live with integrity? If there are no eternal ramifications for the way we live, you might as well go get drunk and have sex with everything with legs and just do everything that you wanna do, selfish desires. Why not if there's no ramifications? Listen, let me step on your toes, Christians. A lot of you are like, well, of course there's ramifications. Craig Groeschel wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Christian Atheist. It was a book about how there's a bunch of people who call themselves Christians, but they don't live in any kind of manner that believes that there's any kind of repercussions for how they live. We do it. We do it. I love Jesus. I never pray. I never read my Bible. I'm addicted to porn. I go out and party all the time. It's all about me, but I love Jesus. No, you don't. You love you. And you fear hell just enough to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. We're Christian atheists. We don't think that we're going to have to own up for the things that we do. But Jesus Christ himself and Matthew said otherwise. We're all going to stand one day in front of our maker and he's going to open up the books of our lives. Uh-oh. That means that how we live matters. But a lot of us in this room are Christian atheists, aren't we? We're Christian by name only, thinking that all the things that we do, well, God just, he loves me. He's going to overlook that. Is he? I don't know if the Bible supports that. But the big question, where does, our, where does our worth come from? Where does our, our meaning, where does our purpose, where does our value derive from? Do you want to know what the problem is? It's all about what we identify with. We're a society 
the United States. We're a culture that finds our identity in everything. And I know right now some of you are saying, man, he is talking about transgenderism. He's talking about homosexuality. And yes, to find your identity in those things is absolutely wrong. It's just as wrong as finding all your identity in your work. It's just as wrong as finding all your identity in your color of your skin. It's all about, it's, it's just as wrong as finding all your identity in politics. Guys, I'm, I got nothing against Republicans, but there are more Christians that know more about the, the, the Republican Party and identify themselves more with conservatives than they ever going to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. I was, I was on, I hate Facebook with a passion. I get on there to look at old cars on Marketplace. That's the only reason why I haven't deleted it. But anyways, I was on there one day and on my homepage, I don't know why I'm friends with her. I probably shouldn't be. But there was a, a, a local pastor's wife talking about all the awful things that Democrats have done. Look at all these awful things that Democrats have done. Way to go, Democrats, you idiot Democrats, Democrats. Do you know what that says to me? Listen, it says that no one is welcome in my church except for people that think like me. And that person has identified more with a, with a political party than they've identified with the heart of God. Corey, that's a little extreme. Is it? Is it? We find identity in our nationality. We've become so arrogant in the United States that we've, we believe God loves us more than Mexicans. Well, God bless us, but man, we need to go bomb Syria. Don't bless them, God. We have somehow gotten in our minds that in the United States, God loves us a little bit more than everyone else. And I know that you wouldn't say that, but we think it. We live like it. We don't think that God needs to bless Canada or Mexico or the continent of Africa or anywhere else. Ironically enough, Christianity is shrinking at alarming rates in this arrogant nation, and it's growing in humble places like Africa and China and other places, but hey, we're Americans. Whatever we find our identity in, apart from Jesus Christ, will always leave us wanting more. It will always come up short because nations will not be around forever. Political parties will not be around forever. The color of your skin, it always offends people when I talk like this, the color of your skin will not be around forever. Your sexual preference and your gender will not be along, around forever. Those things are temporary. And the problem is, is we find our identity in all these things and not all those things are bad. But we find our identity in these things that are temporary and we come up wanting more and we keep wondering why we can't find contentment and we can't find value. And let me tell you why we can't find those things. When we fail to recognize who he is, we will never know who we are. Until we put him first and look at God, we will never understand that our identity goes far beyond what country we were born in, what color our skin is, what gender we are, and what sexual preference we have. It goes far beyond that. We are made in the image of God. And the only thing that will give us fulfillment is recognizing and humbling ourselves. The only thing that will give us value is to know that we are the only things made to resemble the Creator. We're it. A lot of us in this room 
have had a hard time feeling valuable because we've made so many mistakes. If you've ever been to a next class where I tell you a lot about my life, I don't even tell you one one thousandth of all the awful things that I've done in my life. I tell you a lot, but I don't tell you everything. God knows that Corey Trimble has done some evil, dark things. But even though I've done those evil, dark things, that doesn't change my value to God. Do you know what it says in the book of Romans that even while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died on the cross for us? Listen, your nation has never died on the cross for you. Your color of your skin has never died on the cross for you. Your gender has never died on a cross for you. Your success and your job title has never died on a cross for you. There is no human that has ever lived that has given their lives and covered up your sin and shame by their blood. It has never happened. There is only one thing that values you so much that it would give his only begotten son that if we would just believe in him, we will have everlasting life. And that is God. But we keep trying to find our value in everything else. doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made, God loves you. God knew you were going to make those mistakes, and he still willingly gave his son to die for you. Listen, there's a lot of you in this room that struggle with value because horrible things have happened to you at the hands of other people. There's a lot of you that struggle with your worth because maybe your parents abandoned them. Maybe you're sexually abused or physically abused. Maybe your husband left you for a younger wife and you somehow struggle with your value, your purpose, your meaning. I wanna tell some of you that God sees that as well. And just because you feel broken, just because you feel defeated, doesn't mean that God loves you any less. God loves you despite what you've done, and God loves you despite what's been done to you. You have tremendous value, but you're only gonna recognize that if you look at him. Nothing else is gonna give you that contentment. Nothing else is gonna give you that fulfillment. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Guys, there's nothing wrong with being proud to be an American. There's nothing wrong to be proud of the heritage that you came from. There's nothing wrong with being the president of your company. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But it's when those things become our savior that we are going to be let down. There is one name under heaven and earth that saves your soul. And it's Jesus Christ. That's it. And so many of us in this room have spun our wheels trying to hold on to things that are only going to pass away. And we wonder why we keep coming up empty. If you were in this room and, and you believe in Jesus, you would call yourself a Christian, but maybe, maybe you have put your eggs in the wrong basket. Maybe you have find, you're found your, your identity in something other than God. All around this room, we have communion. That represents the body and blood of Jesus. That represents that God loves you so much he gave his only son for you. I don't know about you guys. I have two kids. I would not give my kids for you. But God gave his only child for us. 
If you have forgotten that, the body and blood of Jesus Christ that, that is represented in that communion, we can take that today and we can remember where our value is. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian, but you're curious, you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know the answers, but I'm asking the big questions. Up here to my right, your left, Isaac is up here. He's one of our pastors. Got a master's degree from, from a seminary. He used to be a chaplain in the army. He's a great guy. If you have any questions for him, he would love to talk to you. If it's a long conversation, he'll get coffee with you or set up a time to meet with you. We would love to talk with you. And then on both sides of the stage, we have men and women that would love to pray with you. If you're hurting, I don't know why I keep thinking of this point, but if you have been damaged by someone else, if you feel worthless, why don't you come up here and let a brother and sister in Christ maybe put an arm around you or hold your hand and pray that God helps you recognize how valuable you truly are. Any prayer request you have, though, you can come up here and get some prayer, okay? Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you, Lord. Forgive us, Father, if we have tried to find our worth in anything other than you. God, we've all done it in some way or another. Lord, forgive us for that. God, we know that you love us. We know that you value us. We're the only thing made in your image, God. And you've, you, even while we were at our worst, Lord, you gave your best for us. Let us understand that. Let us live in that. God, keep your hand on my friends and families, my brothers and sisters in this room, and I just pray, God, that you just give us strength, Lord. This life is brutal, and we need help. Please help us, God. We love you, we thank you, and we pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.